This book is the beginning of a section of our Bible known as the Prophets. There are 17 books that we have yet to go through, uh, including the one tonight. And this section is known as the Prophets. And you say, well, why is it known as the Prophets? Because it's written by prophets. Uh, And uh, that's why it's known that way. But we do have that misnomer at the beginning that we have to just kind of set aside here that you have major and minor prophets. And you say, okay, well, what do we mean by major prophets? That they major on major things, and then the minor prophets are just dealing with just minor side issues and picky things and that type of thing, and that's why they're called the minor prophets, because they just kind of focused on minor things. The answer is no, it's just based on the size of the books themselves. Outside of the book of Lamentations, which is included in the major prophets and is just a follow-on to the book of Jeremiah, Uh, all of the books in the prophets uh, do not match the size of what you find in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel as far as material. Uh, The only one that may come close to that is Zechariah. It's a lengthier book, but still even it doesn't really come to, to that point. So the reason they're called the major prophets is not because they have major subjects and God said, okay, you prophets over here have minor uh, topics. No, it's just based on the size of them, that they are a major work. You know, you have that when you talk about composers and, and uh, writers, that they, they have their great compositions and then they have the smaller ones. And you say, well, which one is more important? Well, all of them were important. So That is uh, the one misnomer that you have to kind of uh, deal with when we enter into this that people are thinking, okay, well, once I get past Daniel, the rest of those aren't really all that important, and we'll get to those and we'll talk about how important they are. But tonight, the most important one for us is this book of Isaiah. Say, well, who's the author of the book of Isaiah? Isaiah. Uh, That one was tough. Uh, And so... It's not a trick uh, on this one, uh, and uh, so, yeah. But uh, I would need to write down what the time is on this, and this is where you have your lengthier notes, and sorry for those of you looking through perhaps some, yeah, mast work in that. Uh, we're getting the set set for Bible school. But uh, the time period is this. It's uh, from 740 to 690 B.C. Isaiah lived during the multiple reign of multiple kings in Judah, Okay, here are the kings he ruled during. Uzziah had a very lengthy uh, reign. Hezekiah, who had a very lengthy reign. And Manasseh, well, he didn't quite make it through Manasseh's reign. Uh, Manasseh was an extremely evil king who was worse and did evil on a greater scale than anybody else in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, He's the one who had Isaiah sawn asunder. You know, you say, where do we get that from Hebrews? That's uh, what we have in in history, uh, not necessarily in the Bible, but in history, uh, that he put him in a log and then cut him in half uh, because he did not like his message. Though amazingly, at the end of his life, as you read, I think it's 2 Chronicles, it talks about the fact that Manasseh repented and that God accepted him in his repentance, which is an amazing thing because he was such a, a wicked and vile man. He was also a contemporary of Micah in Judah and Hosea and Amos in the northern kingdom. All of them are contemporaries. So they would have known each other. Would they have talked with each other? I don't know. I do know with Micah and Isaiah, they've got a lot of same statement type things. 
whether these are messages that are going around during their time frame, but you read the book of Micah and you read what's going on in Isaiah and there are some things there you're going, I think they knew each other well. You know, they had had contact with one another and that they had ministered with one another. So these are all men who are contemporaries. Um, understand, when we're looking at the major and the minor prophets, we're not dealing with the first books first and the last books last. So when you deal with Hosea and uh, that, you're going, oh, he's the first of the minor prophets in time. No, he's not. Uh, more than likely, I'm thinking back, uh, it's probably closer to Jonah's time period uh, that is one of the earlier of the minor prophets, and he's in the middle of the minor prophets. So these men are all contemporaries. During his prophetic ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians who came up to Jerusalem but were defeated by divine intervention. This is a whole story of Sennacherib coming, and he's taking city after city after city after city, and it's like floodwaters. As you read the book of Isaiah, that's kind of what it's talking about, that the waters are coming up to the neck, and it's about there, and it's not going to go any further. Well, that's what happens. You've got a guy standing outside Jerusalem that's a representative of Sennacherib that's calling upon them to surrender because they're going to be defeated just like everybody else. And so the armies are right up to the gates of Jerusalem, but they don't proceed any further in the reign of Hezekiah. But the northern kingdom does disappear. Uh, Samaria is destroyed in 722. That's one of those dates when I teach a Bible class. There's some key dates to remember for the nation of Israel. To me, 1445 is when they leave Egypt. 722 is when the northern kingdom disappears because Samaria, the capital city, is captured. Uh, And then 586 is when uh, Jerusalem is finally uh, taken for the third time by Babylonians and uh, is hauled off. Uh, But uh, this is that time frame. So that's the time period that's going on here. You say, what's the message of Isaiah? And it is simply this, the servant of the Lord. You're going to find in these major prophets that the emphasis is oftentimes going to be on Jehovah, the Lord, but something about him. Ezekiel will get to it, and it'll be the glory of the Lord. Uh, And uh, you get to Jeremiah, and it's really kind of the judgment of the Lord that's the whole message there. So this one's about the servant of the Lord. And you say, well, who is the servant of the Lord? Is he talking about a person? And as you go through this book, you're going to find that there are multiple servants of the Lord. As you read through, sometimes you're going to find out that the servant of the Lord that's being described is the nation of Israel itself. It's the nation is the servant of the Lord. There's going to be a complete pagan man that I don't think was saved. It's going to be called the servant of the Lord. As you read through it, a man by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus doesn't even exist in Isaiah's time. He doesn't even exist until the end of the reign of Daniel. He's the king who comes in and and takes out the Babylonians and releases the nation of Israel to go back home. Uh, But Isaiah's written some 200 years before that event, and he's calling this individual in chapters 44 and 45, uh, this one is a servant of the Lord, though I don't think Cyrus was a saved man. No indication of any kind that would, uh, he was. But God says, that's my servant because he's doing what I need to do. 
But ultimately, you have the servant of the Lord that we see uh, raised up in Isaiah 53, and we'll talk a little bit about that passage, the significance of it, because there's an intended significance of it by the structure uh, of it. Uh, And uh, you do have that, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that on our second page of notes that we have there. But uh, the theme is the servant of the Lord, this one who is doing what the Lord needs done. He's accomplishing it. And so the nation of Israel is supposed to be accomplishing something serious. Cyrus is going to accomplish something. And this one who's the Messiah is going to accomplish something. The arrangement of this book, it's a little harder to get through the first part of this because chapters 1 through 35 are prophecies of judgment. A lot of them lined up against the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, some of them against Judah, and some of them against foreign countries. But in all that uh, you have uh, there, it's that you have different things where you go through chapters 1 through 12 where God just lays out what is wrong with the nation of Judah. You have some millennial passages in there where the Lord says, I'm going to rule and reign, and these things are going to happen during my millennial kingdom. But for the most part, God's just laying out, but it's not like that right now because you are really sinful. I mean, if I was to have uh, the kingdom of peace and righteousness where I have my Messiah ruling and reigning, none of the sin would be going on that you have going on right now. You have the burdens of judgment, and that's kind of what uh, the word is that he uses is this burden. It's not something that Isaiah is delighting in. You know, it's not that he gets his gleam in his eye and he's going, oh, yes, another prophecy of judgment. I really love these because uh, you can yell really loud and do that type of thing and pound your, your fist. On. No, these are weights and burdens to the prophets. They are not excited about mentioning what God is going to do. And so many times you'll find these statements as being burdens. Uh, it's burdensome to them to carry this and know this is what's going to happen and then preach to people who then ignore them and so the burden's even worse because here you know these people and what's going to happen to them and yet no change and uh, not any different than modern day preachers and uh, the like where you see things happen like that where you preach and people do not understand. What you have from uh, chapters 24 the 27 is the future of the earth. That is uh, a section where it talks about the millennial kingdom. Okay, understand that uh, at the end of the tribulation, we still have the tribulation coming up on the prophetic calendar, but at the end of that, when the Lord physically comes back a second time, the second coming, he's going to set up uh, a rule in Jerusalem. And those chapters talk about what the earth is going to be like in that time kind of a New Te- or Old Testament end of Revelation kind of passage. And so there are descriptions there of how rulership's going to go on, how the people are going to act, all the nations in the world are going to uh, go on, and so you have this section that's just talking about what the future of the nation of Israel could possibly be, even though they're looking at them and the nations are trampling all over the countryside, that it's not always going to be like that. And so you have that section there, and then you go from burdens of judgment to woes of judgment. And when you see the word woe in the scripture, you ought to stop like you would for a horse, even though that's spelled W-H-O-A. But when you see the word woe, that is about the strongest statement of sorrow that you can come up with. 
Uh, for the Hebrew language, you can't come up with anything stronger. And so when you hear a woe pronounced against something, somebody, this is going to bring great sorrow, not uh, great joy. And uh, it is something that ought to get people just to stop. We're going to hit a book where we get to Habakkuk, and he's going to proclaim five woes in the middle of that. And, and it's, why is the nation of Israel going to be carried off to Babylon? Well, it's because of these things. So let's stop and consider each one of those. And so you have woes of judgment, but you also have in the midst of this a number of nations that are talked about. I will say this as you go through the the major prophets and even the minor prophets, they have a lot to say about countries that do not have God as their God. And you say, well, who cares? They're, they're people who don't care about God, so why do we have to pronounce judgment against them? They're never going to hear that message, but what you have in the, the prophetic books is God declaring these people are worthy of judgment because of the even basic humanities, uh, humanity that they could have, they're not having it. And think about this. Every person's got the law of God written in their heart. And there is a sense that certain things are wrong, and what you have is that many of these nations are just going right over that, ignoring the fact that there is uh, some supreme being. No, they make their gods like what they're like, and uh, they act like they think those gods should uh, act like uh, because they're like, or they're a reflection of them. And so what God does is oftentimes in these prophets, he's, he's declaring things against uh, Babylon and Assyria and all these, and you're like, I wonder if those Assyrians ever read the message that was proclaimed by these people, whether the Edomites ever read those things. And that really doesn't matter. What it's just simply stating for us in future generations is to realize this, we may not have God as our leader like the nation of Israel did, but we're still just as responsible as a nation for the things we do. I mean, our nation is a reflection of who we are as a people and individual activities. And so when God is proclaiming judgment against nations who are pagan, you then realize, okay, he's just as concerned with the judgment of individuals like that as he is with people who know God and talk about him and all these things, uh, that they are still as responsible for their sins as everyone else. So woes of judgment. Chapters 36 to 39 is a section where you have the story of Hezekiah. Okay, there is more written about Hezekiah than any other king in the, the history of Israel. Because there's information on Hezekiah and Isaiah. Uh, there's information on him in major information on him in, in the Chronicles and uh, in um, Kings. There's more chapters given to him in his life than any other king in the history of Israel. You go, including Solomon? Yeah, more than Solomon. Solomon gets uh, 11 chapters in 2 Kings. Hezekiah's got multiple chapters here. 1 Kings, or 2 Kings and in uh, 2 Chronicles. Uh, so he's the most talked about. But this section here is really about what happens to the nation of Israel when the Assyrians show up. It's historical. It's not prophecies. It's, it reads like uh, what you would read in First and Second Samuel. And uh, so it gives uh, portions of history uh, for the nation of Israel, specifically around Hezekiah and the Assyrians uh, more so. And then chapter 40 is where everything changes. And we'll talk about why and how we know that it changes, but it does change in tone 
Because now it's not prophecies of judgment, it's now prophecies of peace. Even though there are still some judgment passages in this section. It's more about peace. And so you read the first nine chapters there, and the emphasis is on God's servant Jacob. And you go, what do we mean by Jacob? Not Jacob, the direct physical son of Isaac. What we're talking about is the descendants of Jacob, who all have him as their father. They're all really chips off the old block, to go back to our Proverbs uh, section that we had. But they're like their father, Jacob, which Jacob's other name was Israel. Okay, we forget that. So we're saying God's servant Israel, but that word Jacob, usually when it's used, is to hint the fact that you're imperfect. Israel's like, okay, you've accomplished something. But when God starts talking about Jacob, then it's like, okay, he's saying that because you've got problems going on. Because Jacob, as we knew him uh, with that name, he was a deceiver and he was always trying to get advantage of people. So the first nine chapters, God's servant Jacob. The middle nine chapters, God's suffering servant. You go, who's that? Well, that's the Messiah. We'll talk a little bit more about that section. Uh, It is really the high point of the book. And then the last one is the last nine chapters, and it's chapters 58 to 66, Salvation and Judgment. So that's how the book breaks down into this. Now, we've got uh, some lengthy paragraphs here, but uh, all of them will help you understand this book, and we'll be done. Don't have any famous verses because we could probably pull up some in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 40, verse 1. I mean, all of these, we're familiar with verses like this. Um, Yeah, so Isaiah 40, 31, you know. They that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall not. Yeah, those, those passages uh, from the book of Isaiah. So there's a lot of them there. But understanding Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is as much a, a much used, uh, book of Isaiah is a much used, boy, you read things multiple times, uh, much used book for quotations in the Gospels of the New Testament. Outside of the Psalms, Isaiah's the most quoted book in the New Testament, but especially so in the Gospels. Um, the reason is that Isaiah contains multiple passages that point to the Messiah, who is the good news. Okay, if I was to say, what's the gospel? And some might go, well, here's a plan, I'll tell you about sin and, and all of these things. And, and the answer is, no, the good news is Jesus Christ. It's a person person, what he, who he is, and what he did. That's the good news. Well, what Isaiah is doing is prophesying in advance what this Messiah was going to be like. It's giving the good news before the good news was even realized to be the good news by people that they didn't quite recognize the fact that they needed a Savior. And so, This book has been called the Gospel of the Old Testament because there are more references in the Gospels to this than anything else, the good news. And so there's a lot of good news passages in here. So one of the things as you go to that back page, one of the first themes that needs to be recognized in the book of Isaiah is the revealed character of God. 
because it starts off with this. And he is described right off in, in Isaiah 1 and verse 4, this statement, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked, what? The Holy One of Israel. Unto anger, and they are gone away backward. And so right from the start, you begin to realize that God's holy. And then it's emphasized, and and many have suggested this, that chapters one through five, there's a lot of judgment stuff in there. I mean, it's pretty harsh. You get to two and it talks about the middle of the kingdom a little bit, but it's, it's really harsh. And some have suggested that this was Isaiah before he saw God in person. There may have been an element to him before in chapters one through five of a little bit of you people, you know, you people do this and this and this and this and this and this and he's all upset about it. And then you get to chapter six where he has a vision of God and he sees the fact that he's holy. Holy, holy. He's unique and unlike anything in this universe. And the immediate response of Isaiah is, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. That's what he's done the previous five chapters is he's spoken messages that God has given him, and then all of a sudden it's kind of realizing, I'm giving this message, but I'm not, you know, I'm not without sin too, because I've seen God, and I realize I don't even come close. I come very short of the glory of God. And so you have the emphasis of this uh, when you talk about holy. The first part is that God is separate from sin. Okay, why is the nation of Israel feeling like their sins, as you find in this book, their sins are separating them from their God? Their iniquities, as you have uh, declared there that you're in Isaiah chapter 50, uh, that your sins separate you from your God, it's because God's holy. He doesn't have any uncleanness. He's pure. And his people, the problem is, is that they are fully sinful over and over and over again. So there is a distance that the nation of Israel is putting between themselves and God. It's not God's fault. It's their fault because they uh, aren't like the God that has created them. And so what you have is that the nation of uh, Judah, as you go through the book, was not yet involved in the gross idolatry of the north but they're going to get there under Manasseh. And they're going to get there, but they're involved in all types of sins. This is why God must judge. Oops, sorry. This is why God must judge because of his people's iniquity. I mean, God can't look upon sin and be satisfied, be comforted. And so God has to judge. The other side of this, the second part of God's holiness, is that he is unique. Nothing and no one can match his abilities. That's when you get to Isaiah chapter 40. I just want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40 because, you know, the first section is about God's judgment because God doesn't like sin. He's got to judge it. Well, you get to Isaiah chapter 40, and we said these are prophecies of peace, and look at how it begins to start. And you have this, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. 
Verse 3, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for a God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, verse 5 says. And then verse 6, all flesh is as grass and the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth because the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people are grass. But then verse 8 ends with this, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So you have all these famous passages that are quoted throughout the New Testament. But then in the midst of this, talking about the Lord God feeding his flock like a shepherd, he gathers them together at the lambs, you say, as lambs, you say, how can God do this? Well, here you have it, verse 12. This is talking about God's holiness. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and meted out or measured out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. No one has ever been able to dig up Mount Everest. And God views Mount Everest as a speck of dust that's on a scale. That That's... that's what he's like in comparison into the largest of structures that we have on our, the face of our planet. Or how about verse 13? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor hath taught him? You know, God has never sat in a schoolroom. He hasn't ever sat where someone has had to teach him, ever. He hasn't needed counsel on how to work things and fix things and do those things. Never. You say, that's unique. Yeah. I mean, many of us always, and are thankful for this, that YouTube has videos on how to fix things. Because there's many occasions where we don't. God's never had that. Or, verse 14, with whom took he counsel and instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed unto him the way of understanding. The answer is no one. Verse 15, behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as small dust in the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as very little thing. Lebanon is not, it's not sufficient to burn. So you talk about the biggest forested regions. You know, if God needed to be warmed, wouldn't do it. Nor beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom shall you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him unto? Sadly, and then you have in these verses, people try to. They craft him with metal and wood and all of these things. And it's a horrible misrepresentation of what God's like. It doesn't even come close. But this is 1 verse 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretched out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. And this is what your God is like. And so you have this idea of holiness. Okay, he's one that doesn't sin and he judges sin. But on the other side of this, you just go, I, I can't even think in terms like that. That there's a being that's like this. Well, he's like that because he's the creator of all those things. He was not created. He's God. And so that idea of uniqueness is there in this book. Judgment in the first half, and then peace. But it's peace based on God being so unique and different than mankind and the human race and the creation we're in. The fact that the nation was sinful made it necessary for God to give them a Savior. 
forms of the words for salvation, righteousness, and redemption appear over 200 times in this book. That's a lot. It's repeated uh, over and over this thought, the Savior that God provided was the Messiah. As you go through every major section in Isaiah, there contains a strong passage about the Messiah except for the historical portion. I mean, you think about 7, uh, 14 through 16 and 9, 2 through 7. These are passages that we quote during the Christmas season. But they go far beyond the Christmas season because it talks about his second coming too. But those are passages that we have this. And, and in, in 11, we have uh, Millennial Kingdom talked about. And you just go through this every section, 52.13 to 53.12. That passage is about this, the suffering Savior that we're so familiar with. So every passage in the book of Isaiah has a strong passage about the Messiah and the salvation that he will bring when he comes. Now the Messiah is illustrated by various pictures as you go through Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah 7.14, he's a child. For unto us a child is born. Okay, that passage. Uh, He's a king in Isaiah 9. He's a branch in Isaiah 11 verse 1. He's a stone that people sometimes fall upon and are destroyed, but others that come upon and rest upon him, and it's a foundation stone. Uh, Isaiah 42, he's a light and a servant. It's when you get to that 40 through 66, which is 27 books, that that theme of the servant of the Lord becomes prominent. She said it's used to describe the nation of Israel, a faithful remnant of Israel. I don't have it here, but Cyrus is a servant of the Lord and even the Messiah. But here's something that you may want to do, and I've done this before where I've just taken Isaiah 40 and read through 66. There are 27 chapters there. And as you read through it, those break up into three nine-chapter sections. And I want us to just go to the end of chapter 48. And it's kind of the sign that you're, you're done with a section because it makes this statement in Isaiah 48, verse 22. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. Okay. Well, what's the end of the next section? The end of the next section, uh, as you go through this and you do your math and, and you count through, so... You go, okay, it should be 57. Okay, go to the end of Isaiah 57 and verse 21. There is no peace, saith my God. Okay, kind of a note. Okay, here's, here's the end of this. Remember, they didn't have chapter references here, so this is kind of their way of recognizing that this is the case. And then you get to the end of Isaiah 66 and verse 24. And if you want to know what no peace is like, verse 24, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an whoring unto all flesh. You go, uh, that sounds like a description of hell. There's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth where the worm dieth not. You're going, okay, there is no peace for individuals like that. That's what happens when you ignore the Savior. But 
what you find in the middle of this, okay, you got these three sections of nine, but in the middle section, the very middle of it is the passage that starts in Isaiah 53 uh, and verse 12 and goes to the end of Isaiah, or Isaiah 52 and verse 12 and goes to Isaiah 53 verse 12, and what you find as you read through this, that there are, there is, excuse me, I use the right English here, that you go through, that in there, there are four sections of three. You start in Isaiah 52 and verse 13, behold, my servant shall deal prudently, as many, in verse 14, were astonished as he, his visage was so marred, more than any man, and his form were the sons of men and so shall he sprinkle many nations. That's where Isaiah 53 really starts. Okay, so when you read Isaiah 53, you want to start in uh, verse, uh, verse 13 of chapter 52, but you've got three sets of three verses, and then you take the center of that, and it's verses uh, 6 and 7, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shears are dumb, so he opened not his mouth. I mean, that's the center of this section of peace is that passage, and that is the highlight section. The middle portion right there is lifting up this Messiah who dies for people like us who wander around like sheep. And it pleased the Lord that he laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so that Isaiah 53 is not just, okay, it's a nice passage. No, it was intended by Isaiah to be the middle point, the high point of the whole of that section. So if somebody wants to know, well, what's the the, the message that I'm supposed to get from this? There's a Savior coming who is the Messiah who will take care of our wanderings as we are so sinful in life. So uh, that's a a different way to read the book. It's the correct way to read it, but uh, you ought to just take it that way, that there are nine, nine, nine sections, and then right in the middle of that center one is the highlight point. The book of Isaiah provides wonderful passages for evangelistic preaching. You get to Isaiah 55 and verse 1. You're right there. If you're still in Isaiah 53, it says this, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come unto me, uh, come unto ye unto the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me. Eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight in its fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Come unto me, all ye that thirst. Sounds very much like when the Lord says in Matthew chapter 10, which Matthew quotes a lot from Isaiah Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Same kind of, same kind of statement uh, being made there. But it also contains great text for encouragement of believers uh, in chapter 40. This is a passage I turn to often if someone's going, you know, they're in the hospital, they haven't been able to read the scripture, and they say, you want me to read something? I'll read you Isaiah 40, especially the end section there. 
You know, who's, who's like the God that you have? Well, there is no other one like this. You may be going through difficult times, but it's not that he's sitting there and going, I want nothing to do with you. No, those that wait upon the Lord, have faith and trust in them, he will, what? Ultimately, give them wings as eagles. They'll have energy of a young person. You go, well, I don't see that after surgeries I've had. Uh, it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Someday, maybe not in this life, but in the life to come. So it's difficult to take in all the themes of Isaiah, which then makes his book rich for a lifetime of study. So uh, it is one that just is massive in its material. And there are some sections, I admit, as you go through the judgments of different nations, that it kind of, uh, you're like, okay, I'm not sure exactly what the enrichment of this is, and you have to work a little bit harder at it. But there are other passages you're just going, uh, this is hard for me to absorb that God would, would do this and that he is this type of a God and praise the Lord for it. So Isaiah, the gospel of the Old Testament, worthy of much uh, consideration and thought. Lord, we thank you that uh, your son was a servant, came into this world to die for us, wayward, wandering, sheep-like creatures, that our sins had set a distance between you and us, and that your son, because he took upon us, or put upon him our sins, made it possible that we could inherit the riches of glory, as it finishes in Isaiah 53, that we have a portion uh, with his inheritance because of his sacrifice. So, Lord, we thank you for uh, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who came into this world. He is the good news. Thankful for Isaiah pointing this out 700 years in advance, that this wasn't a haphazard thing on your part that Jesus suddenly came in. No, it was a planned event for our own salvation. So we thank you for your word. May we continue to be encouraged by it, uh, that you are a great and holy God, and we praise you in the name of Christ. Amen.